You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On November 14th, the Washington Post Live welcomed co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlisle Group, David N. Rubenstein, and award-winning Fox News anchor and author, Brett Baer, for a conversation with the Washington Post's Francis Steed Sellers. The discussion focused on their new books, Rubenstein's The American Story, Conversation with Master Historians, and Bayer's Three Days at the Brink, FDR's Darren Gamble to Win World War II. But the two also touched on politics, media, and the economy. Let's listen. Generous. Morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Fred. And welcome to Washington Post Live, everybody. I'm Francis Steed Sellers. I'm a senior writer at The Post. And I'm delighted to welcome two great leaders from Washington here. David Rubenstein on my left, who uh, started out as a lawyer here in Washington and then became an enormously successful businessman and now is a noted philanthropist here. And Brett Beyer, who uh, came to Washington uh, to report news for Fox News and now is the chief political anchor. So thank you very much for joining us both here. Um, both men, as Fred remarked, have also just published books. We have them here, The American Story by David Rubenstein and Brett Beyer's book, Three Days at the Brink, which I've had the pleasure of re recently reading. Um, both of you, when I've seen you on air and read your books, make a point of what you're not. David, you've said you're not a journalist, and Brett, you say you're not a historian, and yet you've both produced these very accessible histories, designed, written in a very journalistic way and designed to reach a public. David, let's start with you. What was the, what was the origin of this book? What drove you to write a book? Well, I've been interested in history for some time, and my concern is that Americans don't know that much about history relative to what they used to know. Uh, we don't teach civics very much anymore. We don't teach American history very much anymore. You can graduate from any college in this country without having to take an American history course. You can be a history major at 80% of the colleges without having to take an American history course. So you get things like the recent Annenberg survey, which showed that three quarters of Americans cannot name the three branches of government. And um, it's a sad situation. One third of Americans cannot even name one branch of government. And 10% of American college graduates now believe that Judge Judy is a member of the United States Supreme Court. Stop. Stop. So, <laughs> so um, I, I, the, why should people care about history? Well, uh, George Santayana, a very famous uh, Harvard philosopher, once said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. The theory of learning history is we can avoid the mistakes of the past and improve upon things that happened before. And so I thought... Who better to know the history of our country than our legislators, members of Congress? So I started a series about six years ago to, I won't say educate members of Congress, but let them know more about American history by bringing in the great American historians, and I would interview them at the Library of Congress in front of members. At the Library of, of Congress, so in the, the It's a, the it's a non-part, it's, a, it's a, uh, a political setting, and you can go there from the Houses and the Senate offices underground, so you don't have to worry about weather. They come, we have a dinner reception, members sit with people from the opposite party, they, have, they hear a great story from a great historian, and then they have a chance to both learn about history, but also to talk with the people from the op opposite Party. So how well informed are our lawmakers about history when you have this particular I, private forum? Well, it's very easy to make fun of members of Congress, and that's, you know, there are very few people you can make fun about anymore. You can make fun about lawyers, maybe, maybe private equity people, and members of Congress. But members of Congress are, are people that are uh, really, they work extremely hard, they get paid very modest amounts of money relative to what they could probably get on the outside. And they actually know a fair bit about history because they are making the laws and they have, 
you know, an interest in history, and I think they didn't get to Congress by knowing nothing about history generally, so they are very interested in this. Brett, your book focuses on a particular uh, era during the Second World War where FDR cozied up to Stalin, somebody he knew was a, a dangerous person. Why did you focus upon that moment at a book at this moment in history? So this whole process started with the first book about Eisenhower called Three Days in January. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a long process where I, I discovered that I wanted to look through a soda straw at a moment, uh, focus on that, tell it like a, a story to breathe life into that moment and then bounce back and look at how that leader gets there. Right. Eisenhower is the middle of the Cold War and really the heat of the battle with, with the Soviet Union as nuclear weapons really are a, a major threat. My next book was about Reagan, Three Days in Moscow, about the final summit with Mikhail Gorbachev and how consequential that was and a speech that Reagan delivers to Moscow State University students that's largely overlooked in history uh, that was really the heart of Reagan's pitch to end communism. So that was kind of the first two and I thought this is really working, maybe like the Star Wars movies, I'd go back to the beginning and the pre <laughs> prelude, right. and then the beginning of the Cold War, and that's this, and that is the end of World War II, uh, but this conference in Tehran in 1943, Again, largely not talked about a lot in history books. Right. You usually hear about this Yalta. In the Soviet embassy in Tehran. That Churchill FDR and FDR had, had determined that they needed Stalin on their side. Right. And in order to beat Hitler, and the reason it's three days at the brink, is because we forget that the U.S. could have lost World War II. And at that moment in time, Hitler was on the march through Europe. Uh, we had had some victories in the Pacific against Japan, but not many. And there was a chance that it could go the other way. So Tehran happens, and they plan D-Day, Operation Overlord, and that obviously changes the entire history of the war and the world. But we have this triumvirate, very powerful men, right? Churchill, Stalin, and FDR. And FDR, in this moment, in your telling, cozies up to Stalin, right? Potentially at the risk of alienating Churchill. How does that work for three men in, in this So that interpersonal dynamic really makes the drama of that moment. Right. You think, is a conference, a Tehran conference, is that going to be interesting? It's... For me, it was fascinating because we had uh, documents from FDR and writings from his aides, Churchill papers, and even papers from Stalin, all looking at the same moment in three different ways. Um, and FDR determined that he needed to get Stalin to believe that Churchill and he were not ganging up on him uh, to make the Soviet Union weaker. So. In essence, FDR in this conference throws Churchill under the bus and at times just jokes about him. Churchill is very emotional. His aides say he cries once a day. And um, in some of these moments where FDR is joking with Stalin about him, Churchill storms out of dinners and, and meetings in this conference. Uh, but because they establish that relationship, they do win the war, but eventually, they lose the peace because Stalin is emboldened. He's emboldened by After FDR dies, Churchill loses, and that's the beginning of the Cold War. So I'm sitting here with two people and these two incredibly impressive books here. How do you find time, David, and maybe you can start <laughs> at the end of a day to work on something like this? It's an, it's an extraordinary 
a compilation of interviews that you've done. You've well, the interviews took place over a six-year period of time, and then I've now done about 50 of them, and I distilled uh, about 18 of them into this book, and we edited down the transcripts, and then I summarized them a little bit and talked about my relationship with the authors and so forth. It takes about a year, year plus. Uh, when you're beginning this kind of effort, you say, I can't wait to have a book out. When you're in the middle of it, you say, why am I doing this? And then... Uh, you know, at the end, you kind of say, thank God it's over. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody that writes a book in the end realizes that it's a, it's a permanent um, memory of what they've done in their life and something that's going to be around forever. So my children, uh, I'm not sure what legacy I'll leave for them. At least I'll leave a book for them. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think they've read the book yet, but I've sent a copy to them. But I'm hoping, you know, the last people are going to read my book are probably my children. But uh, I dedicated the book to them, but uh, I don't think they yet uh, decided to read it. <laughs> Brett, I know you have another strategy for getting your children to read your book, I which do. we can talk about. But you, do you not have anything better to do in the evening than to right. come home after well, covering the news Most people say, why do you do this and right. how do you do this? Why you know, don't you have enough to do? Um, and I do. I have a, a day job. I'd like to personally thank the House Intelligence Committee for taking a day off from the impeachment <laughs> hearings. Um, so that I could have this this moment. It really was going to be a scheduling snafu uh, anchoring that coverage. But... Uh, I get home at night after a day, and my time is at night to work on a book. Um, and I usually put in a couple hours a night. My wife Amy here is in the front row. She knows I don't sleep a lot. And um, I have this process now where I have a, a wonderful researcher who's the former mayor of Salina, Kansas, who I found in the original Abilene, Kansas, Eisenhower research. Um, she then went to uh, Simi Valley, and then she went to Hyde Park uh, and found these nuggets. The National Archives are just rich with these treasures of things that, honestly, we as uh, Americans uh, can realize by just uh, uncovering some of the stuff that's been there forever. Uh, so my process is, at night, I have a great co-author, Catherine Whitney, and we put these pieces, sort of like a quilt of nuggets, and then put them together and bounce back and forth real time uh, in the writing style. Now, when you're writing a book, uh, it's, you're know, not sure if it's going to read well or it's going to work well. And, and when I interviewed authors, I often ask them, how do they do this? Some people say they work in the daytime, and when they get 300 words, they're done for the day. Other people say they keep writing until they just fall asleep. Other people start at night and, and work only at night. And there's no one way that proves that it's right or wrong. But I'll tell you an anecdote that was uh, related. Uh, I don't think I put it in the book, but one of the most famous authors in our Amer American history now is David McCullough. And David McCullough, great uh, American historian, uh, the way he writes is he writes a paragraph out, and then he gives it to his wife, Rosalie, and then she reads it back to him. And then he listens, does it work, does it, does it read well, does it sound well? And they do this back and forth after every paragraph. And so one time he told me a story where he gave her a paragraph, she read it back, and she said, you know, I don't think this one sentence works. And he said, read it again. Uh, it's okay. No, I'm not sure it works. Read it again. And she kept reading it, and he kept saying, no, it, God damn it, it's okay. It's okay. Just forget it. Leave it alone. So it goes into the book. Uh, the book comes out, and a book review is done by Gore Vidal. And he says, this is a spectacular, spectacular book, one of the best books I've ever read in American history. However, there's this one sentence in that book. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. I can't figure out why such a great writer like David McCullough would have this sentence in there. <laughs> but he did, in your book, credit his wife for yes. his success. Yes, it's, it's incredible. He was, uh, I was saying in... Uh, 
in the introduction of, of David McCullough that he was getting an award uh, in New York and I was at the ceremony and he got up to get the award. It was a big award and he spent his entire time talking about how wonderful his wife was. Well, and I was wondering how many people are doing <laughs> that. That uh, pays dividends <laughs> later. Right. <laughs> but you actually have written a, a shorter version of your book and a more accessible version of your book for your children. Or right. For children. So again. my publisher, William Morrow, uh, part of the deal we made when we thought about these books, each one, and I really wasn't thinking about three, but it ended up being three, which, by the way, is a wonderful three set for Christmas. It's, uh, Stop. Oh, three, three. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm not really. But uh, at the same time, they came out with a, a young reader's edition for eight to 14-year-olds. Uh, so it's the same book, but in readable for young readers. And that's really, to David's point, part of the reason that, that I'm so into this and addicted to it is because I do believe, like David, that civics is, is being lost and that if we can breathe life into history, that especially for kids, that's a major thing. So my two boys, Paul and Daniel, 12 and nine, are reading the book or at least David, they say they read. Are you going to do the, the same thing with this? Are you going to? Well, I haven't. Children's ha I, You know, he's a successful author, and therefore, <laughs> um, there are people wanting him to write more books, and, and a children's book. This is my first book, and I think the publisher is waiting to see whether anybody buys the book and, uh, <laughs> before they want a children's edition. But I would say that uh, for those who are listening or watching, uh, if you want to live a long life and make a lot of money, read this book. Um, <laughs> nice. If there you, you want to get to heaven and have a long time in heaven, read this book. <laughs> I, there are secrets in there about how you get to heaven in this book, and I don't want to uh, disclose them, but you have to buy the book before you get these secrets. So read this book and you will live you a long have, and prosperous life. You've spoken often about, as a, as a child, the importance of reading to you and yes. how you grew up reading. And tell us a little bit about this, because I think sometimes um, you feel as if children are caught up on screens, yes. and you had this luxury of the Baltimore public life? Yeah, to be very serious about it, um, my parents were not college graduates or high school graduates. Uh, they were terrific people. I was their only child. Um, they gave me the only thing you really need from your parents, which is unconditional love. But they didn't have book learning in the traditional sense, uh, and they really couldn't afford to buy a lot of books. But um, I was a, uh, grew up in Baltimore, and the Enoch Pratt Free Library there, which is essentially the Baltimore Library, said you can take out books. Uh, when you're six years old, you get your library card, and you can take out 12 books a week. And so I would go every Saturday, get the 12 books, read them that day, and then I had to wait another week before I could take out more books. But I, I got a love of books, and um, I now I try to read roughly 100 books a year, which is, sounds ridiculous, but I'm reading books on subjects I know reasonably well, and I, and I can get through them. And I do it because I, I think reading a book is better than reading um, other things. It focuses the mind, and it really shows a certain discipline to be able to get through a book. And I just think it's sad that in this country, so many people don't read or can't read. It's hard to believe, but in a country as well-educated as we theoretically are, 14% of adults are functionally illiterate, which means they can't read past a fourth grade level. And if you can't read past a fourth grade level, your chance of having economic success in life is very limited. 80% of the people in our federal prison system are functionally illiterate, uh, which is a hard thing to, to overcome. And also, I, there's another problem called illiteracy, which is to say people don't read who can read. 30% of people who graduate from college in this country never read another book in their life. It's so hard to believe. So I ask another question about reading history in particular. You have this audience of, of members of Congress. You've written about a particularly key moment uh, of an American president talking to um, a, a leader from another country he didn't respect. Did you, did you come out of any of your meetings with members of Congress saying, well, now that I've heard what Jay Winnick says about FDR or anybody else, I'm going to think again about how I approach 
or judge contemporary politics? Have you seen changes in, in the way you know, people um, have talked or thought? There aren't really these kind of epiphany moments where people right. say, aha, I've now discovered uh, what life is all about and I'm now going to change the way I've been conducting my life. That doesn't quite happen that way. It's more by osmosis. You read a book, you hear about it, you interview the person and they, and they say certain things and then over a period of time it might make a difference. Members of Congress love coming to these events because they can see people from the opposite party, which they rarely get to do, or talk to them, but they also can learn about American history. Uh, this week we had uh, Danielle Allen, who's a professor at Harvard, talk about the Declaration of Independence. And we went through it more or less word for word in terms of the preamble, and members were riveted by it and what the meaning really was of you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, things like that. So I think members do get a lot out of it. Whether it changes the way uh, Western civilization goes forward or not, I don't really know, but I think there's some benefit. But, I Brad, think you the, interviewed President Trump um, soon after he had met with Kim Jong-un, the, the uh, North Korean leader, while you were working on this book. Did, mm -hmm. Were those two things resonating for you at that very key mm -hmm. moment, the history and the contemporary events? They were, and they, they formed kind of my, my thought process of some of that questioning. I put it in the book. The book starts uh, at the 75th anniversary of D-Day and then ends with kind of a look at right. those interviews on Air Force One uh, after the Singapore summit. And basically, you know, you can extrapolate. It's not one-to-one -one, to David's point, but there are things to learn from our past because we've, we come there again. Mm -hmm. And um, this, you know, he, FDR is talking with uh, the devil uh, when you think about an authoritarian dictator who killed millions of people. Um, Churchill agrees that at one point in, in 1941, he gets to the White House, Churchill does, and he says to, to FDR, you know, no one can say that I w anyone was more against communism than I was over the last 25 years, but if Hitler invaded the gates of hell, I'd have to put in a good word for the devil on the House of Commons floor. I don't get to do that on the show that much, but, um, <laughs> but he, so there was this, thought that, you know, talking to dictators could pay dividends. It obviously hasn't for President Trump as of yet, uh, but uh, in other books, Eisenhower was probably our most bipartisan president, worked with Lyndon Johnson, um, and uh, got our national highway system that we ride on today. Uh, Reagan and the lessons of those summits and how he dealt with Mikhail Gorbachev, mm. I think pays dividends for leaders down the road. So, so it, it's, they extrapolate. Field, do you think that we're in danger of forgetting the lessons of World War II and particularly the institutions we established immediately following that war as we move into an age of increased nationalism? I, I mean, I think it's possible, and and there are lessons to be learned from what FDR aspired to do. But at the end of his life, and and you know, Tehran makes him sick, but Yalta kills him. Right. And he the travel to later. to Yalta and back soon after that, he dies in Warm Springs. Wow. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> well, well they, they, they planned. In effect, they began planning um, D-Day invasion at Tehran. And you think about it, we now think we've won the war, so far, how could it have gone any other way? But on the D-Day invasion, as you know, um, Hitler was asleep when it occurred. They were afraid to wake him up. The panzer divisions were probably there that could have rejected the, the uh, people assaulting the beaches in Normandy and Omaha Beach, and they were afraid to wake him up. Had they woken him up and the panzer divisions had gone there, we could have lost, and maybe history would be different. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we right. were gonna win that war. 
Do, and the, do you the seas, that, the, the yeah, fog, exactly. all of the 10,000 men that die on those Our beaches. lack of, we've both mentioned our lack of knowledge, contemporary people's lack of knowledge of history. Do you think that's hurting the country now? And if so, how? Well, the theory of history is that uh, you should learn it because you can avoid the mistakes of the past. I think that it would be better if we learned history. Right now, for example, in the last eight years, history majors in the United States have gone down by 34%. In other words, a 34% fewer history majors than before. Now, if you everybody major in history, it's not going to solve all of the world's problems. But I do think a better knowledge of history would be good. And it would be better if, if our junior high school students and high school students had an appreciation of the country's history and some of the most important principles behind our country. I would say, by the way, uh, I have not interviewed President uh, Trump since you've been president. But you did uh, beforehand. I did interview him once before. At the, <laughs> that sent the lights there out. There you go. At the, Maybe uh, that's the key. But President the reason, Trump. The, well, well, the reason I haven't probably been able to interview him recently, of course, he's interviewing with Brett, but is that uh, Well, not recently, once, right? Once, once. I've interviewed him. I brought him to the Economic Club of Washington, and, um, and uh, this was about five years ago. And he, in the green room, he said, David, ask me anything you want, but for sure ask me at least one question. What is it? Ask me if I'm going to run for president. I said, president of what? He said, president of the United States. <laughs> I said, Donald, I don't know you that well, but you're not going to be president of the United States. I've been in Washington a long time. There's no way you're going to be. He said, well, you never know. So I, I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to you, you know, in your, in your book, you, you, um, you have historians who speak about the founding fathers, who are, of course, remarkable people who established an extraordinary system of government in this country. But they were also slave owners, slaveholders. How do we reconcile that? How, do we, how are you encouraging people to teach that here and deal okay. with those difficult? Um, if you take today's um, standards on anything, ethics or culture and so forth, and you put it back 1,000 years ago or 500 years ago or 200 years ago, these people are not going to look as good as we are today. Slavery was around for a long time before uh, this country was even started. In this country, our, a lot of our leading, our, our first presidents were slave owners. George Washington was a slave owner, James Madison was a slave owner, Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner. So I think you have to take the good and the bad and put it in some perspective. When I was involved in trying to uh, help uh, restore Monticello, I asked the people there if they would make certain that the slave quarters were built out right. so that people could see what Thomas Jefferson, for all of his brilliance, was a slave owner and he ran a plantation and he had a relationship with Sally Hemings for 30, 30 years and it's hard to know what the nature of that relationship was, but we should let people know about it and let them make their judgment about the good and bad of people. And I think, so. and, and just looking back, sometimes we look at leaders and presidents as superhuman when we look back through history, but all of them are flawed humans. Mm -hmm. FDR was really brilliant in his communication style, his ability to have empathy. Uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, obviously a wonderful historian, said it was because of uh, being stricken by polio at 39 that changed his ability to empathize and, and communicate on that front. And, and George Will uh, wrote that uh, that when the, the iron braces went on his legs, uh, the steel infused in his soul, he had this great ability, and we look back at that, but he was also a flawed person. And his relationships with his own family, with Eleanor Roosevelt, right. uh, he at the end kind of had a bit of a God complex where he alone could solve all the problems. In part, that's one of the reasons why when he dies, there's not a lot, uh, he believed that he could contain and corral Stalin from ambitions in Eastern Europe. Right. Uh, Harry Truman, his vice president, is not in the inner circle. He doesn't even know about the Manhattan Project that eventually he uses to end the war in right. Japan. 
You mean a vice president wasn't told what was going on? That's right. It's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to okay. believe. How so, odd. Um, you know, Churchill was responsible for many great things in our country because he used to come to the White House and stay weeks on end because in those days he wouldn't travel quite as frequently. So he'd come, he'd stay at the White House. He was trying to get uh, President Roosevelt to come into the war at that point. But eventually, um, because he sometimes wasn't fully clothed, people thought it might be better if he went somewhere else. So Eleanor Roosevelt convinced the government to buy Blair House. That's where the... Uh, uh, the idea for Blair House came for <laughs> foreigners to say, not at the White House. But Churchill, when he came to our country, uh, after he was prime minister one time, he was older, he went to Richmond. And uh, in Richmond, uh, the dowager lady who was in charge of uh, uh, hosting him took him around. And uh, at the dinner, she said, well, Mr. Prime Minister, what would you like for dinner? I'll help you get it. And he said, well, I'll have some of that chicken breast there. She said, well, in mixed company, we don't use the word breast. <laughs> Uh, it's called white meat. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I have some of that white meat? The next day, he sent her a telegram. Um, said, thank you for the great dinner we had. Um, enclosed is a corsage. Put it over your white meat. Um, <laughs> okay. Let me tell you one quick story about Just to follow that on. One quick story. So in 1941, <laughs> at the end of that, that year, he, Churchill, is at the White House. And he is, as David mentions, larger than life. He's drinking scotch. He's smoking cigars. They're on the back porch overlooking um, the South Lawn. Uh, FDR's drink is a... a uh, gin martini, uh, very dry. They're talking about the war, but also the post-war. And what uh, FDR envisions is a, uh, a group of countries that's going to fight fascism, and they're debating what to call it. They all are overserved, and they go to their rooms, uh, and FDR has an idea, and he rolls down the hall to Churchill's room, and he bursts in the room, and he says, Winston, Winston, I've got it. We'll call it the United Nations. And at the time, Churchill was showering, and he comes out completely naked, dripping wet. <laughs> Churchill. Trump Churchill. <laughs> dripping wet. And FDR is profusely apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, he's, and Churchill says, well, the Prime Minister of, the, of Great Britain has absolutely nothing to hide from the President <laughs> of the United States. Okay. And that's how we end up with the United Nations. So, uh, David, well, it's a similar the... story. Uh, the no, church I'm going to stop is, you there, because we should, we should move no, on. I want to right. talk to you particularly about your, what you call patriotic philanthropy. And you coined this term, I think, to talk about the, yes. um, some of the documents you have bought, like Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and you've put them on show for people, as well as working on some of these public buildings that we've talked about, the Washington Monument, the memorials. Right. Can you tell me why you think it's important to bring these documents? These, okay. We can read them online. Why? Yes, get that's the point. The uh, why preserve? The Magna Carta was up for sale. There are 17 copies of the Magna Carta that extant, 15 in British institutions, one in the Australian Parliament. One had been bought by Ross Perot from a British family that had it in its possession for 500 years. Um, he put it on display at the National Archives after he bought it, and then eventually he decided to, to sell it. Uh, I was told about it. I went to see it, and I was told the likely buyer would be from outside the United States. So I knew enough about American history to know that it was actually the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence in many ways. So I thought one of the 17 copies should be here. And so I did buy it and, and put it on display. Now, what's so significant about that or other documents, Declaration of Independence or things like that? Here's what it is today. It may change in 100, 200 years. The human brain has not yet evolved such that if you see something in a computer slide, it is exactly the same as seeing the original. If you go see the original of the, of the Magna Carta, you're more likely as you prepare to go to read about it, and you're more likely after you see it to learn more about it and maybe talk more about it. And, and therefore, I think a computer slide is different than actually seeing the original. The same with the monument. 
You might read about George Washington on a computer slide, but if you actually go visit Monticello, or not uh, Mount Vernon, I mean, or you go to um, uh, the Vision of the Washington Monument, you're probably, before you go, or after you go, you're going to learn more about Washington, and therefore maybe there's a better knowledge that we can uh, get of these people. And therefore what I've tried to do is to remind people of the history and heritage of our country. The many people are doing it far better than I am. But that's what I've been trying to do on the theory that if you remind people of the history and heritage of the country, they might be better informed citizens. Better informed citizens might lead to a better democracy. That's Let me the just theory. say that it's humbling to be here because uh, we as a country honestly owe David a, a giant well, right. uh, a giant thank you because he's one of the only people doing well, thank it. You. Well. Uh, all right, thank Patriotic you. philanthropy people. is kind of your thing. It's you're well, one of the only you. people who's doing. And people must have many, many ideas for how you should spend your money. Um, I get, uh, <laughs> I roughly, uh, I get roughly fifty million dollars of requests a week, um, right. and I can't, I can't do them all. I am surprised uh, that more people haven't done this. Um, People who are involved in philanthropy, there's a lot of great philanthropists in the country, far better than me and bigger than me, and they do great things. But I've been surprised that I haven't been able to get so many other people to do quite what I would hope they would do and follow this. Other people are doing some, but um, you know, they're, you know, I'm now 70 years old, so I'm not going to be able to do this uh, forever. Although, if you read this book, you do live longer, so maybe I will live longer. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so maybe, so, maybe I'll keep reading the so book. So I have ideas, but Brett, where do you think his next target should be? And uh, given this this shared history, interest in history you have, and particularly American history. Right. Well, I think there are many more interviews that that you've done. And by the way, he is a brilliant interviewer right. to the point where some of the questions I look at him and go, "Why don't I ask that question?" <laughs> You know, and um, you really are. And these interviews with historians really illuminate these little facts that, and that's why I keep coming back to, is that these seeing uh, these leaders in the past as humans and telling their stories uh, changes the dynamic. It's not just reading history, it's okay. actually reading characters and it's it's a lot more like storytelling right so the next group i think should be the next group of interviews and hopefully when you come on special okay. report we can talk about that oh well, i'll be there this afternoon whenever I meet everybody. <laughs> you also interview ceos you interview yes. business leaders and i've listened to some of those there as brett says very entertaining who is more thin-skinned to interview a CEO or a politician? You've done, you've done both. And CEOs are playing a, a big role in politics these days. Well, most CEOs are pretty well coached by the time I get to interview them. You usually don't rise up to be a CEO without a lot of coaching. And they are pretty well trained not to say things that are going to get them in trouble. Could I say you're funnier than Lorne Michaels? <laughs> I watched that interview. <laughs> so I, I would say that... Uh, um, you know, CEOs have some thin skins, but it depends on what, what kind of questions you ask. And you can, you can get anybody upset if you ask the wrong type of thing. I am not trying to get people, I don't, as I say, I'm not a journalist. So I'm not trying to get people to say something they don't really want to say. Right. I'm not trying to make news in a, in a way that a journalist might. Right. It, I think there's people who are thin skinned. If you ask anybody embarrassing questions, they'll, they will probably have thin skin. So I try to avoid some of those things. But my goal in interviewing CEOs is mostly to say, how did you become a leader? Tell us the story from how you became from typically a modest background. How did you work your way up? And what were the setbacks that you overcame? Because I'm trying to inspire people to think that they could do the same thing. Right. What people care about when they hear CEOs is not so much the earnings, but 
what is the, the, the genesis of the drive that laid, led that CEO to become a great uh, business person? So, oh, when you so, interview Bill Gates or, or, or Jeff Bezos or, or other people like that, what made them tick? That's what people really want to know. And so my interview Thanks. style is just try, yeah. try to take, um, especially lawmakers, off their talking points right. and try to hone the question enough so they don't have an exit ramp to get to their stump speech. We have and, many and with CEOs now running, I mean, an, an unprecedented number, right, running with an eye to 2020. What particular skills do you think they bring to the political arena? Well, I mean, obviously the organization, running the country is different than running a company, um, and it's it's not one-to-one uh, synonymous, uh, and it's very challenging, as both parties can, can tell you. I will say, as I went around the country in 2016, um, the thing, thing I got from most people was that both parties stink, and we should kick the table over and try something different. Well, clearly the country tried something different in that election, um, and the question is now uh, how this is gonna play out over the next few months. And I think it's fascinating to watch. We are in really a historic time, and there will be some historian who has documented these moments, uh, because every day is some, you know, six or seven news cycles. I tell my staff it's like drinking from a fire hose, you know, and <laughs> right. we're one tweet away from right. changing the rundown of the right. show. So, so we're also asking CEOs not, I mean, they're putting themselves forward to run for, for, run for public office, but we're also asking them, and I think the Business Roundtable brought this up recently, to think about the public good, as you have done in your role, to think about climate change and other things. What is the, what is the public function of a CEO these days? Should they just be running their businesses, or do they have a role to play more broadly? Well, today, uh, the world has changed. The zeitgeist of the business world up until recently was focus on shareholder return, make as much money as you can without breaking the law, and you'll be doing what you're supposed to do for your shareholders. Clearly, the business roundtable statement really just symbolizes what has been going on for the last 10 or 15 years. You should worry about other stakeholders, not just shareholders, employees, customers, uh, the environment, and other things related to that. And you should be uh, doing things that are, are good for society, even more ESG concerns. So that, that's changed, and I think it changed for the good. And the CEOs are very sensitive to that. If they're not, they're like, not likely to be successful CEOs for very long. I would say in terms of interviewing uh, people, I would just make a comment that uh, we haven't talked about yet. And uh, people ask me all the time, who would you like to interview that's not alive now? And who would, you know, what great history figure. So, you know, of course, you can come up with the usual answers. Everybody would like to interview Abraham Lincoln or, or uh, Thomas Jefferson. But this weekend, I had a chance to interview George Washington. I went to Mount Vernon, and the person, Dean Malice, who plays George Washington, and knows Washington inside out. He's been playing it for about 15 years down there. I interviewed him in, in his costume, and also he knew uh, the, the language and so forth. And I've been thinking maybe it would be a good idea to interview historic figures like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, by somebody who actually knows them, because huh. children or young people watching might be more inclined to watch an interview of Abraham Lincoln than the interview of the person who's written about Abraham Lincoln. That's a good idea. So, Let me just say huh. one more thing about interviewing, is that... Um, I was a big fan of the late Tim Russert, and I thought he did a great job. And one of the key things was listening. And it's not about the question and the list of questions. It's about listening to the answers and then redirecting off of those. Mm. David does that brilliantly. I think some people forget that in our, in our industry. And I think even just listening overall, to listen first, would be a great motto for the country. I, would, I want to ask you a little bit and take us more into the current political arena. You have been quite 
well, billionaires have come under criticism recently. Um, how do you think we should solve income inequality problems? You've also criticized some of the current candidates, but I'd love if, to if hear I your views the, on that. If I had the answer on income inequality, I would yeah. be in Iowa and not here. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I, I don't have the answer. No one person has. There's no, we didn't have an income inequality problem arise uh, in one year or two years. It's been over a long period of time. It's now really bad. Um, but I also would like to mention that it's not just income inequality, it's social mobility. Right now, people at the bottom don't believe in the American dream the way I did. And I thought if I worked hard, I, I believe in the American dream, I work hard, I can make something of myself. Now many people at the bottom of the economic strata don't believe that they can work their way up. And so the social mobility is relatively limited. And so it's not just solving the income inequality. If you take away the money of the wealthiest people in the United States, it's not all of a sudden going to make the people at the bottom be, enable them to read better or to, to be able to have all the skills they need to succeed in life or believe in the American dream. So it's not a simple answer. If anybody had the answer, they would come out with it. There's no one answer. Brett, you're sitting right at the intersection of current events and, and history and media at the moment. And President Trump has continued his um, criticism of journalists, calling us the enemy of the people. Um, can I have your thoughts about that? And I've spoken out about it before. I think that's a horrible phrase. And um, I think that in, in the main that all of us are trying to do our jobs. And I think that it's uh, no other president has, has done what this president has done as far as attacking the media Do you think directly. it's having an impact on journalists as they try to prepare the first rough draft of history as... I think that most journalists have been undeterred um, by the barrage. I do think that it's real, though. I mean, you could look at my Twitter feed. Uh, it can be a dark place some days. Um, but listen, uh, this president is different than, than any other president we've seen. Uh, you can not like how he does it. Uh, and a lot of people don't like his style, the way he does it, the way he attacks the media. You can say that there are some stories that go over their skis and get emotional about this president because of his personality. Um, and I, but I, I think that it's going to come down to, you know, what has been done versus what his style and, and the things you don't like about him, but what is getting accomplished. Mm -hmm. And that's what people in the middle of the country are making that, that judgment. We're in the middle of an impeachment hearing, and this is a serious moment. Mm -hmm. It cannot be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should look at it as that, a somber moment that we as journalists have to be fair to both sides. That's all I'm do trying to do, is to, to make fair? sure I call balls and strikes every day from six to seven, and that's what I'm looking at. The media has been fair to I mean, I can't speak for all the media. I know I have. Right. I would say that uh, President Trump, for all of, all of his pluses and minuses, and I won't get into all of that, I would say he has reinvented the media, uh, uh, the use of media by presidents. I would say FDR more or less invented the fireside chat. chat right? um, John Kennedy. That was his Twitter, by the way. Right, it was. Twitter. And John Kennedy perfected uh, news conferences. Eisenhower didn't really like to have news conferences. They didn't have, weren't that common. John Kenny held one, I think, virtually every week. And we'd go over to the State Department Auditorium and have a press conference there. That reinvented the presidency. Ronald Reagan, because of his skill in front of a camera, was very good in making presentations and speeches. President Trump has used Twitter to his, um, I guess, advantage because he's now communicating directly. He's bypassed the press corps to some extent. And he's bypassed the need for a press briefing every day in the White House. He's using these Twitter... Uh, feeds and, and his tweets as a way to communicate with the American people. 
whoever his successor is, whenever that occurs, will probably do much the same thing, maybe in a different tone, different way. But I think that uh, presidents have now gonna, are going to communicate with people much differently than they did many years ago because of what he's done. So Each Brett, president Brett, has I a think... problem with the media. Each one. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I'm, and, and this one just expresses it a lot differently. In September, at the beginning of the impeachment inquiry and the investigations, I'm going to quote you here. You said, we should all take a pause and look at what we're seeing in front of us. What did you mean by that? What you, were, you were talking about taking a pause about reaching judgment, I guess. Right. See the evidence. Let it play out. Let the thing, right. just cover it for what it is. Don't make assumptions or jump to things. I think, you know, in our current state, uh, state, uh, it's like panel after panel after panel about what people think about something that's happening before us, instead of just the thing before us, and then let the viewer or reader decide what they think about it. And David, I think you've, you have also said that we should wait to make a judgment about the current administration. How long? When, 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 does, well, when do we start to see history? There are two different things. One, I, people can make judgments uh, currently about the president's good or bad and so forth, but historians generally like to have 30 to 50 years pass before they can see all the documents and really make a, a historic judgment. So I think the definitive history of any administration probably occurs decades later. But clearly people can make judgments now about what the president's doing, rightly or wrongly, depending on their point of view. And um, I suspect that this hearing, as it goes forward, will go down in history as a historic moment in his presidency, uh, whatever the outcome is, for sure. Still, these telling moments come out. You interviewed Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State right. Mike Pompeo, and he made a sort of what seems in retrospect like a, a telling remark. He said to you, um, and again, I'll read it, that President Trump is very focused on where money is and how we use economic leverage to achieve our diplomatic ends. Does that well, at the time of that interview, um, I didn't obviously know about all of this, so I didn't know enough to follow up and what he was really uh, referring right. to, and it's been re referenced uh, um, since then. But uh, I would say the situation in Ukraine is very complicated. I was over in Ukraine myself for a conference not too long ago, and I actually did meet with the president of uh, Ukraine myself, um, and it was a, a meeting we, we talked about generic things. I didn't really realize any of this was going on at the time. He was a very smart man. Um, he's did, did portrayed Trump as come a, up in that? I'm sorry? Did Trump come um, up? Not really. Uh, yeah. portrayed only as a, he's portrayed as a comedian, but it's not quite fair. He's a businessman who happened to um, own a comedy troupe. He had been a comedian, but he's basically a very successful businessman and quite smart, I thought. And, um, you know, he did not raise this with me in the meeting, so I didn't know anything about it. Well, we have a few minutes left, but um, I, as you might suspect, have been suffering a little bit from imposter syndrome with two uh, well-known <laughs> interviewers here, and also I have the wrong accent to be talking to you about American history. <laughs> so over to you, Brett. What's the burning question you have to ask David? And then ah. I'd like to ask David what burning question you have Fantastic. to ask Brett. Well, I'm going to go to the book because I understand that you could live longer by reading the book. <laughs> That's what I'm told. And the, also, if you interview the author about it, you live very long. Oh, no, fantastic. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. What I love about these interviews, and they, they all get into, and you're so well prepared for each of them, uh, that you know kind of what the answer is going to be. Uh, but then you throw a question that I can see that the author is thinking, okay, where did that come from? Um, for example, of these uh, figures, former presidents, world uh, U.S. figures, who would you want to have dinner with? 
Well, in my view, the, the person most responsible for the United States being where we are today is the president held us together during the Civil War. It wasn't obvious then, and it isn't obvious to me now, why Abraham Lincoln said, let's keep the South as part of the country. Why not let the South say, if you want to keep, have slavery and you want to go your way, goodbye. I'm not going to risk hundreds of thousands of lives just to keep the union together. And it's not clear to me that other people would have done that. Also, when you take a look at his humility, his brilliance in the way he writes and the way he talked, um, he'd be the most interesting person I think anybody could interview who's been an American. And so he'd be the one person I'd like to interview. Um, I don't know it's a good interviewee. He didn't do a lot of interviews <laughs> that I could see. He probably wouldn't have been great on TV, but I think, um, I think he would have probably enjoy being interviewed by you. Um, and, uh, and I hope I would get a chance to interview him too. Excellent. In, in costume, perhaps. So um, <laughs> let me ask you the difficulty uh, that you must deal with from time to time. Fox is perceived as being on the right and to some extent very pro-Trump, but you have not been in that camp particularly, I would say. Uh, how do you kind of deal with the, the perception that Fox is one way, but you are trying to be a straight shooter and, and not be uh, seen as just uh, parroting whatever President Trump wants? Is that awkward to do at times? And how do you deal with that? So back to the Tehran conference in 1943. No, I'm just kidding. Um, here's the, the answer, and I, I give it often, and that is... And that was an original question. I no, that was, was good. That was very good. Um, listen, there are two sides to Fox. There's a news side and there's an opinion side, much like a newspaper, a news uh, section, and an opinion page. Uh, as I said, I try to operate with blinders on between six and seven. Uh, we have amazing journalists in a stable of journalists that break news all the time, and we lift those up. Uh, fortunately, the business respects uh, the news element of it, and I try to uh, talk about that, about what we're doing. It is different than what the opinion folks are doing, and um, you're right. For people who don't watch Fox, a lot of people paint with a broad brush, and I tell them to watch my show three times and drop me an email or a tweet or a Facebook post and let me know if you think it's fair. And most people who do that come back and say right. it was. On your book, there's a story that there was an assassination effort, perhaps, to kill the three leaders at Tehran by the Nazis. Uh, did that actually occur, and if it, uh, the planning, and if it didn't occur, why didn't they try to assassinate those people? Was it a fiction? Yes, so Churchill believed that it was a fiction. The U.S. said they think it could have been real, but Stalin and his people said they had intelligence that the Nazis had parachuted in uh, assassins dressed as Red Army soldiers to kill the big three leaders. So that is why Stalin says you have to move the conference to the Soviet embassy uh, for better protection. Churchill thinks it's all a ruse uh, and thinks it's a big part of Stalin having more of a home field advantage. He already chooses Tehran, which which makes FDR travel 6,000 miles to get there. Um, so and it really never materialized. Again, Churchill thought it was fake. Uh, fake news. Fake news. Fake news in the early days. Uh, but Stalin did have a home court advantage, having everybody at the Soviet embassy in Tehran. Each of the rooms was bugged, and everybody knew and it. And every day when FDR got up, how long did it take to put his braces on and to get ready for the day? Was that an hour or two process of getting those braces on and getting him up and ready to be functioning? It was a long process, but one that he um, 
he really hid. If you think about it, the press never shot a picture of him in a wheelchair. Imagine that. And this was an agreement, essentially, right? That they. And when he had a big event, he would be on the arm of his son James, who used to describe having welts and bruises on his arm because his father would hold on so tightly. And a wheelchair without arms, so that it looked like a regular chair. Looked like a regular chair. He drove um, a specialized Ford Phaeton, 1936. So do we allow presidents any privacy today? Is this a huge change? I mean, none of that could happen. None of the Kennedy years could happen. None of the, I mean, a lot of things uh, are different now today. And think about being a leader today. Uh, the decisions that you make have already been around the world on social media as a discussion before you make them. So it's pretty tough to be a, a world so, leader today. So we have this guy in the White House who's got some experience in media, got some experience in business. He's written some books. Have either of you ever thought of running for president? Well, I have. No, no. <laughs> Please, go first. Please. I enjoy covering it. I don't imagine running for anything. But, you know, you never know. Oh. You never wow. know. <laughs> hey, wow. Hey, announcement. Um, I think that uh, people, for whatever bizarre reason, ask me that from time to time. And uh, I think, you know, my best skill set is probably doing the various things that I'm doing. And there are a lot of good candidates out there. But I would say that it is amazing how so you many people... You did work in the White House with... I did work there Jimmy and Carter, uh, right? it was enjoyable. But uh, I, it, it is interesting how so many people are, are interested in being president of the United States. And lots of people... Lots of them this uh, ...obsess over it. And it's interesting how the way our system now works... If you want to be the head of a corporation, you typically have to work your way up over many years. If you want to be the head of a journalistic organization, you work your way up over many years. But because the way it was reinvented, the presidency and the campaigning for presidency in, let's say, 1976, the way Carter won or came in second but perceived as winning Iowa, then New Hampshire, it's perceived that if you go to Iowa, you do well there. You go to New Hampshire, you do well there. You can be off, your, so off the races you, and be president of the United States. What do you think about Michael Bloomberg's potential run? Well, I have a conflict of interest because I'm on his show and so forth and <laughs> on his network. Um, I think Mike is somebody that is extremely talented. He's built a great business, a great philanthropist, very smart. I think he just feels that, well, I won't pretend to speak for him. I think he feels that he could do a great job. And it's sad that he isn't in a situation where he could be president of the United States. So he would like to try and we'll see what happens. Um, it's, not, it's not easy to pull this off and money isn't the only thing that works. I so, think it's fascinating that, you know, we thought that the field would be narrowing at this point. Right. It seems to be growing uh, with oh. Deval Patrick, Michael Bloomberg, right. perhaps so, others. So just quickly, I'd love to ask you, what are you most proud of? You've got such diverse careers and such diverse interests. We only have a couple of minutes, but... Well, um, I have three children. All of them have MBAs, so uh, no struggling <laughs> artists, uh, no filmmakers. So um, I guess I, you know, I don't have to worry about uh, the future for them so much. Um, I'm, I'm actually proud uh, of to having taken my, my abilities and been able to make something of myself. And, but I, I guess the thing that actually gave me the greatest pleasure in life was actually um, being able to do this when my mother was alive um, because I was her only child and she would see, you know, that I was uh, doing these things. And when I was making money, she never really called me to say, hey, congratulations. When I started giving away money and started giving back to society, she'd say, now you're doing something useful with your life. And so I like to feel that the... Um, uh, <laughs> The strongest magnetic uh, appeal 
uh, in the universe is really between a mother and her son, particularly if your mother's Jewish. And um, <laughs> my mother did not have so much confidence in me because I pointed out in my book that she said, keep right. your law license because, right. uh, you know, the it's business the might not work and uh, you can always go out and, <laughs> and practice law. Right. We're trying to what follow in David's footsteps and uh, some of the philanthropy that we're trying to do. Amy is the... Uh, the foundation board chair at Children's National, uh, where our son had a tough start with three open heart surgeries and nine angioplasties. Uh, but he is 12 years old and the tallest kid in his class, and wow. he's doing great. So he and his brother Daniel is what I think we're most proud of, and uh, we aspire for the future because um, that's really what we got to focus on, right. is that next generation. So that's the important thing. That's a current theme. We've been talking about the past right. to inform our futures. Well, thank you very much, David Rubenstein thank you. and Brett. Thank you. for being Thank here. You. Thanks a lot. Thank you. I want to let everybody in the audience know that we have their books outside, so please pick one up as you go out. I can attest, and I did read the books. They're wonderful books, and you'll learn a lot from them. And you will live longer. <laughs> if you'd like to watch our interview, it will be on WashingtonPostLive.com later on, so please tune in later. Thank you very much for watching. I'm Francis Steve Sellers, and thank you for a wonderful morning. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.